Uh, you know, something I've always found really interesting, I'm sure you've noticed this, how pretty much everybody likes Jesus. Even people who don't really believe in Jesus or follow Jesus, it seems like they still have a fondness or at least a respect for Jesus. Everybody kind of likes this man. Uh, even Paul Maffin, when he preached last Sunday, talked about his travels around the world, his time spent with people of uh, uh, Buddhists and, and Hindus. They have this very high regard for Jesus. Uh, I spent time in a primarily Muslim country where they consider him to be a prophet. They hold him in high regard. And most modern people, American people, at least, at the very least, we consider him a great man, a great teacher. And the reasons behind that typically are, well, he had compassion on the poor. Uh, he was against injustice and hypocrisy and stood up against those things. He taught us to love one another and to live in peace, right? What's not to like about Jesus? But then we come to the Gospels. And if you've been with us at all, of course, you'll see it today. When we come to the Gospels, we, we come to realize Jesus did not place any priority on being liked. He never made that his goal. Jesus had no interest in earning people's approval. He never asked anybody to leave him a good Google review. Jesus uh, never did anything to increase his brand or his appeal. He refused to settle for merely positive public opinion. That didn't matter to him. What mattered to Jesus was faith and discipleship. And, and we see this as we jump back into John chapter 6 today. Jesus is at this crossroads. He's really at his most popular place in ministry. This is the time where everybody seems to like him and they want to be around him and the crowds have swelled to follow him. And yet, instead of riding the wave of that momentum, Jesus turns to the crowd and he speaks some of the hardest, most difficult words of his entire ministry today. So to catch us up to speed, when we began John 6 a couple of weeks ago, we saw this. Jesus feeds, miraculously feeds, 10,000 plus hungry people. But then he withdraws from the crowd because he knows what their hearts are to do. They want to take him and make him their king and spark a revolt against the Roman Empire. That's what they think Jesus has come to accomplish. And so he runs away from the crowd. But then the crowd, the next day, they're able to find him again in Capernaum. And Jesus tells them, what he really wants them to understand. He says there's a kind of bread that perishes, that you eat physically and it satisfies only momentarily, but there's a bread I give that nourishes forever. And more than that, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Come down from heaven. He who comes to me will never hunger. Now I'm guessing when we hear those words, that's a great comfort to us. There's, there's joy in those wonderful words. But the crowd stumbles over these words. They do not take it as good news. And so we see how it unfolds. Look at John chapter 6, verse 41. Look at the crowd's response. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Y'all, it's an interesting word choice here from John. That the people of Jesus' day 
are doing the very same thing their forefathers did centuries earlier. When we read in the Exodus story about the Israelites being rescued out of slavery to Egypt, one of the great stories in all the Bible, they enter into the wilderness as God has set them free and is going to set them ultimately free to a promised land. But almost immediately after they arrive in the wilderness, they begin to do what? They begin to grumble against God. If anything wasn't to their liking, they grumbled. Despite what God had done for them, miraculous deeds, salvation from their oppressors, grace at every turn, and yet the majority of the people didn't really know God. And they certainly didn't trust Him, and so they grumbled constantly. Well, y'all, here in John 6, what does John tell us? The people grumble against Jesus. Not 24 hours after He's provided this miraculous meal for them, the bread and the fish, they grumble against Him. And we see what they're grumbling about. Isn't this Mary and Joseph's boy? Right, this is where Jesus' family now resides, in Capernaum. We know this guy. We know where He's from. And so how can He claim to have come from heaven? Now, the people actually make a good point. If the popular notion of Jesus is right, if Jesus is a great man, a great teacher, a great example, then ultimately he's not really different than us. He might be better than me, but he's made of the same stuff as me and you, right? He's not really any different. He may be better, but he's not unique. He's still just a person. And in that case, if Jesus as a person is claiming to have come from heaven, that's either a flat-out lie, or it's lunacy. And so we can understand this grumbling here. If they're thinking Jesus is a man like us, then how can he make these claims? But as always, Jesus knows the heart of these people. He always knows what's going on below the surface. And so he pierces to the heart in his response to their grumbling. Look at verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. That's a little obscure, right? Jesus is accomplishing a couple of different things, though, right here. For one, we see this, he's diagnosing the hearts of these people. And he so often does this. He's showing them the true heart and the motivation behind their grumbling in this case. The reason they're grumbling over Jesus is that they don't really know God. They have the same problem, the same heart, that we've already seen in John back in the last chapter. Back in chapter 5, when Jesus was in Jerusalem speaking to the Jewish leaders, he gives them ultimately the same diagnosis. This is John 5, verse 37. Jesus says, The Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. That's the ultimate issue. Jesus says, you don't believe in me, and that's a revealing thing. 
you don't really know God. For all your religious activity, for all your Bible study, for all the things that you do that give appearance of spirituality, your, your rejection of me shows that you don't really know the Father. Well, y'all, that's what's, that's what's happening in John 6 in Capernaum. These grumblers assume that they're in the know. We know where this man is from. We know everything there is to know about him. And yet Jesus says, no. You neither know me nor my Father. Jesus cuts across their wrong assumptions. And we see the, the, the root issue, the heart issue here, goes deeper even than we think. Look at verse 44 again. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws us. Y'all, this is parallel to something Jesus already stated. This is a negative statement. No one can. But He said it positively just a few verses earlier. This is, uh, well, it's three weeks ago now, but right before that in verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And so think about what Jesus is saying here. Verse 37, God gives us to Jesus. Verse 44, God draws us to Jesus. And then in verse 45, God enlightens us. He opens our eyes and our hearts to Jesus. We see it in verse 45. Jesus quotes the prophets. He brings us back to the language in the Scripture that these people in front of him would have surely understood. He quotes from Isaiah, and it makes a reference to Jeremiah. They will all be taught of God. That's a promise that God makes that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. We call it the New Covenant. God calls it His New Covenant. There's coming a day, God says, when He will give His people new hearts to know Him and love Him. He'll put a new spirit within them. He will write His very words on our hearts so that we will obey Him from the heart. And we will know Him forever. The new covenant. And who is the focal point of the new covenant? It's the one speaking to us in John. Right here, it's Jesus Christ. All of the saving work of God. All the promises of what God is going to perform in the hearts of men and women. Jesus Christ is the focus. He's the one come to fulfill it. And so we see just here in John 6, the Father gives us as a gift to His Son, Jesus. The Father draws us to Jesus. The Father enlightens us to Jesus. And therefore, we come to Jesus. We come to Him. Because of the Father's gracious and initiating work of bringing sinners to Himself, we will come Jesus says, if the Father draws. Y'all, if you are a Christian, it's possible that you are humble and smart and spiritually minded and all the rest. That's great. But that's not what makes you a Christian. That's not why you're here. There's nothing in me or in you that got us here. It is entirely of the grace of God. 100%. There's nothing that you and I, when we get to heaven, they're going to have a big line of people like this welcoming us in, high-fiving us as we run through the tunnel. We didn't earn our way in. God gives, God draws, God enlightens, God saves. All the glory to Him forever. That's why you're a Christian. And that's good news. Now, y'all, at this point, Jesus knows what He's doing. 
He's losing the crowd. He's telling them things they don't want to hear. He's diagnosing them and essentially calling them lost and far from God. All this popularity that Jesus had enjoyed just 24 hours prior, it's now just hanging by a thread. And yet Jesus is undeterred. This is something I love about Jesus, even though it's hard and abrasive sometimes. Once He finds a hole to run through, He runs full steam ahead. He's speaking with these people, and never does Jesus say, now wait a minute, hold on, I think you've misunderstood me. Let me backtrack. He keeps on pushing. He knows He's about to lose them, but remember, His mission is not to be liked. His popularity is none of His concern. He wants to drive home the point and purpose of His being. Why did He come to earth in the first place? Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give, which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Y'all, it's it's clear at this point, if the people in front of Jesus were confused still, it's, it's becoming very clear. This bread he speaks of is not something he's come to hand them. It's not bread for the body. In fact, Jesus makes a reference to the manna in the Exodus, the wilderness. That's a thing that God provided you that you could scoop off the ground and bake into a cake. It was food for the stomach, but that's not what Jesus has come to provide. Salvation is not a thing. Salvation is a person. It's a person. This is who He is. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Meaning, Jesus is our one true and essential need. Just as bread is essential for the life of the body, we'll die without it, much more so, Jesus Christ is the essential need for the soul, for the person, for the eternal reality that you and I live in. We are eternal people. We will live on forever, and therefore we need a bread, we need a sustenance that nourishes forever. He's the essential person come to save us. And He's come down out of heaven. You notice how Jesus continues to say that? Because He's not merely a man. He's the Son of God, God in the flesh, our divine Savior, and therefore, He's the one and only person who can actually meet this great need of our hearts. No other human being can meet our essential and deepest needs. No one can satisfy and bring us reconciling relationship with God. That's impossible. Unless a man comes from heaven to accomplish it. Unless someone can give us eternal life with God because He's got the divine power to see it through. And so y'all, when G- don't stumble over this concept of eating the bread of life. Eating the bread, which is believing in Jesus, trusting Jesus. That's the parallel meaning here. To eat Him, to take Him in, is to trust Him as the one essential person who brings me salvation. To eat means to receive. We'll, here in a moment, we're going to take communion. We're going to take a meal, bread and juice, that we didn't earn. It's been provided for us. We receive it into ourselves. That's what it is here, this idea. Receiving Christ to be filled forever by His grace. 
He's the bread of life. Isn't that good? Y'all, uh, this, this past weekend, uh, we took the boys to Atlanta. We went to the aquarium, which is awesome, by the way. Uh, they've got a new exhibit, fairly new, I think. It's, it's sharks. And in this massive tank are hammerheads and tiger sharks and all manner of, you know, scary-looking toothy sharks. And so we're, we're admiring these, these, you know, massive, scary creatures. And then we notice in the same tank this great big school of little fish swimming around, darting around, you know, as, as one like they do. And the first thought that occurred to me was, now whose assignment was it to put the little fish in a tank? Of all the peaceful aquarium tanks available to us in this building, some, some person drops these fish into the shark tank. Like what chance could they possibly have? And yet we notice this, the sharks swim by, and it's like the little fish aren't even there. They pay them no attention. Clearly they have no desire to eat these fish. Whatever the reason for that was, I don't know, maybe the fish tasted bad. Maybe there was something about that certain kind of fish or that certain kind of shark. I don't know. But they have no interest in the fish. And I wonder, if, if is that what's happening here in John 6? Jesus offers himself as the bread of life, the bread which nourishes forever, the bread which when we eat it, when we take him in by faith, we come into relationship with God for eternity? Is it simply that these people just don't have a taste for it? They're just indifferent to what Jesus is offering them? You know, I think that's part of it. I really do. But it's more than that too. These people, so often when Jesus encounters people in His ministry, they're not just indifferent to the offer of salvation, they're offended by it. Offended at the thought that I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness and I can't earn my way in. And so that's what begins to happen here in John 6. We'll see it especially next week as we conclude the chapter. But here it's already beginning. Look at verse 52. The Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They proceed from grumbling to arguing. The heat's being turned up. And y'all, if this scripture, if, if up to this point this scripture's been confusing, I've got real bad news for you. We're about to really go off the rails here. Um, what Jesus is about to say in response to their argument is one of the strangest, most difficult statements in the Bible. Okay? But we're not going to just give up when we come to places like this. There's gold in the scripture for those who are willing to dig a little bit for it. And so let's just follow Jesus' reasoning here. And I think we'll be, uh, we'll, we'll be enlightened. We'll be encouraged by what we see. But this is hard. Verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, I don't know how many times I've read this scripture 
and it still makes me cringe every time I read it. And we can be honest enough to say, to read these words, it, it's gross. It's unsettling to read language like this. And it certainly would have been unsettling and appalling to the people who were hearing Jesus for the first time, these Jewish people. And I'll, I'll try to explain why. But let's, let's break this down just a little bit. What is Jesus communicating to us? The first thing I, I hope we'll see is this language of eating flesh, drinking blood, this is sacrificial language, which we find all throughout the Bible. Jesus seems to be coming out of left field here, but He's not. We find this in the Scripture, especially among God's people in the Old Testament. God, y'all, read through uh, the first five books of the Bible, and you'll see this develop uh, in, in really incredible ways, with great specificity. God establishes a system of sacrifice in order to grant mercy and forgiveness for the sins of His people, in order to be reconciled in relationship to His people, there's a sacrificial system that God puts in place. And so perhaps, example, you might take a lamb to the altar, and the priest would officiate on the altar, taking that lamb and sacrificing it on your behalf. Then, taking that sacrificed animal, some of the flesh would be taken and burned as refuge. Some of it then would be taken and cooked and then eaten, and then there was the blood of the animal, which was either applied to the altar or poured out on the ground and sometimes covered up. Okay? And the reason for that process was this. You didn't eat the entrails. You burned them. You ate the meat, or the priests ate the meat to be nourished, but the blood was poured out. Y'all, it was a big no-no to drink the blood of a living thing or even to eat meat that still contained blood. Read, read through Leviticus if you don't believe me. It was a huge issue for the people because God established how they were to operate. For one, you don't drink the blood because that's what the pagans did. But even more, God tells us multiple times that the blood represents the life of that animal. Or the blood of a person represents his or her life. The blood is identified as the life, and therefore God forbade it. You cannot partake of it. You don't put it in your body. You pour it out and cover it up. Now, I should also go without saying that cannibalism was off limits. You can't eat people, okay? But think about this. When Jesus stands before the crowd, people who knew their Bibles back and front, and he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Y'all, that's not just strange. It's not just gross that would have been abhorrent to the people of the day. May it never be that we would drink blood like the people who don't know God. Strictly forbidden by God. May it never be that we would be found to be that uh, crude and dirty and defiling of ourselves and our bodies. No, the blood is the life. You don't take it into yourself. And yet Jesus says, drink my blood. What's he doing? Is he just aiming for shock value? Now, three quick things on this that I think will help us. I hope will. Most importantly, this is a metaphor. Jesus is not being 
literal here. It should be obvious that he's not being literal, even though the people don't really understand him. Jesus often spoke in imagery, in metaphor, communicating something true by giving us an image that we could understand. Clearly from the context, the eating and drinking is not literal. We've already mentioned this. It's it's trusting and receiving Jesus. It's taking the essential need into your life, into your self. And so just as food and drink keep the physical body alive, so Jesus is the one who gives life to the soul, who gives true and eternal life. It's a metaphor. That helps. But then secondly, we just mentioned the sacrificial nature of what Jesus is saying here. Remember, Jesus said, the, the, the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's already told us what He's come to do. Not just to teach us about God, but to reconcile us to God by sacrificing Himself. He's the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. Remember when John the Baptist proclaimed that earlier in John? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? He's the once and for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And so y'all, Jesus doesn't save a person by waving a magic spiritual wand over our sins. He lays down His life for our sins. Nailed to the cross. His flesh given up to be beaten and broken. His blood shed for us. He was the sacrifice for our sins. And so it's a metaphor that shows us the sacrifice that Jesus came to provide His own life. And then thirdly, y'all consider this, the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. That's why drinking blood was off limits. That's why it was such an abhorrent idea to them. God said, don't do it. But Jesus comes around and says, drink my blood. Again, not literally. But the point is this. If the life is in the blood, and the shedding of blood is what forgives our sins and gives us life in His name, Jesus is communicating something truly awesome here. He's already told us earlier in John, and and, and back in chapter 5, you don't need to turn there, but Jesus says that you and I, every person, is dead in our sins. We're spiritually dead. But, Jesus says, I have life in myself, and therefore I give life to whomever I wish. We are dead, meaning we are incapable of coming to God for salvation on our own merits. And yet Jesus, because Jesus has life in Himself, the divine Son of God, is able to give life even to the dead. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live, He said. And so Jesus Christ, by giving His own life, by shedding His own blood, is able to give life to undeserving sinners like me and like you. The life is in the blood. And so that's what He's done. He didn't wave a wand over you. He shed His blood for you. And life eternal is now the gift His blood provides. So let's look at this little section one more time. Maybe with fresh eyes. Don't be grossed out. It's a metaphor. Listen to what He says. Go back to verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. 
For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. We have no life in ourselves. But if we receive the true food and the true drink that is Jesus Christ, if we trust Him for His grace that He alone can give, Jesus says we live because of Him. He is the source of all life and we are brought into Christ forever just as we take Him in to our own lives. We share in His Life. And therefore, Jesus says, you abide in me and I abide in you. Y'all, there is no more precious gift than this. There is no more uh, precious uh, food or drink offered to us in all the world than this. What Jesus Christ has come to give, Himself, that we might receive. Not a message merely. Not a set of truths to follow in hopes of finding our way to God but a person to eat and drink the one essential thing God has provided for us. Not an idea, not a book, not a message merely, but a person, His own Son, that we get to take Him in and have life because of Him. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of this message how easy, how common it is to like Jesus, and yet how clear it is that Jesus didn't aim for that. In fact, He pushed hard against it All these people who liked him for what they thought he might provide, Jesus turns the table on them and says, no, I'm not going to keep feeding you physical meals. That's not what I've come to do. If you like me merely, you won't stick around. I want you to trust me. I want you to know me. Now, it's not to say, of course, that it's wrong to like Jesus. I sure like him. I hope you like him. I want you to like him. But that's not enough. Jesus forces us to go below the surface here. You can't just like Him. You can't just like Him. There's no such thing as casual, non-committal Christianity. You can't date Jesus to see how it goes first. To see if it's worth investing more of your time and energy in your life. No, when we look to Jesus Christ, we see what He says. I am true food and drink. I am the one essential person, God in the flesh, who gives life to the dead. The one who receives me entirely, the one who receives me, eats and drinks, will live because of me. And y'all, that's why when Jesus speaks of salvation, we saw it multiple times, He speaks of it as coming to Him. No one can come to me unless the Father draws Him. All the Father gives me will come to me. Right? Everyone who has learned and heard from the Father will come to me. Not just like me, not just admire me, not just respect me, but come to me. Y'all, that is the great privilege we are given. That we get to come to Jesus to eat and drink, to trust and receive. God did not send His Son to educate us, to inform us, 
to whip us into shape. He came so that He might bring us to God in perfect sonship as those who are called children of God forever. There are no halfway measures. There is no liking Him. Come to Him and be saved. Let's pray. Father, what a gift it is this morning. I pray, I pray for me, for us, a gift that our eyes could see such difficult words in the Scripture. Thank You, Lord, for the, the words that require deep focus and head-scratching. And Lord, that You would require us this morning to not just pass by these very difficult words of Your Son, Jesus Christ. He has called us to eat of His flesh and drink of His blood. Lord, what, what, where, whatever that does to confuse us or even to put us off, Father, would You enlighten us this morning, our eyes, our hearts, our minds, to see what's really going on here. You sent Your Son as the one essential person, the true need of our hearts, our souls, our lives for all eternity has been met. It has been satisfied in a person. And Lord, we are meant to take Him all the way in, to trust Him, to receive Him fully and freely. So Father, thank You that Jesus Christ, uh, in, in this crossroads moment today, did not fire up the crowd like a politician would, enjoying the popularity while it could last. But he spoke the words of truth that give life. The true words that we desperately need to hear. Help us, Lord. Where I'm ignorant, where I'm so quick to, to think that life is somehow in me, I can find it, I can, I can manufacture it, I can be good enough. I can come to, to God on my own. Father, show, show me, show us this precious truth. No one comes to Jesus unless you, Father, draw him or her. We desperately need a grace that we cannot manufacture. Open our eyes, our hearts, to see him, to treasure him, to eat and drink this morning. Father, even if that confuses us still, give us ears to hear and faith to receive, to take Jesus in and to delight ourselves on the fullness of his nourishing grace. Thank you, thank you for this gift in the name of our powerful Savior, Jesus our Lord. Amen.